A reading from Exodus. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God and all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome they have among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. The Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said, so they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, 
Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. And Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The Gospel of the Lord. It's almost like the people who created the lectionary placed it here to bolster our stewardship pledge drive, isn't it? You know, I mean, clearly the reading is saying, give your pledge to God and do it quickly. <laughs> um, it, it's probably saying something else. Uh, and, 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 but if you like that one, you just, let's go with it, you know, or you can do that and hear the rest too. Um, really, th- this is an interesting thing to hear, and the context is super important. We've jumped from Jesus being an itinerant teacher throughout the region of Judea, around Jerusalem, to smack dab in the middle of Holy Week. So, so this is the week of Passover in which the population of Jerusalem has increased about a thousand percent. So some estimates say that a million people throughout the ancient world have descended upon the city for this one week. And that means that the city is rife for rebellion and revolution. After all, uh, Roman laws and Roman presence was repugnant to Jewish custom and identity. So during this week, there's been parades of power by Rome, sort of like when you see the tanks roll through the streets. chariots, not tanks. Interestingly enough, Jesus is doing this teaching in a giant, at the time, the largest um, known human religious uh, platform. That's the Temple Mount, the size of about three football fields. And the largest garrison of the year is right in the corner in what's called the Antonia Fortress that Herod built. Basically, these are people, shock troops, ready to come in uh, during the slightest sign of rebellion or revolution or somebody doing something like questioning paying taxes to the emperor and take out the threat. So the Herodians and the Pharisees have come up with this clever plan. They're not actually interested, of course, in knowing the real answer. What they're interested in doing is discrediting Jesus one way or another. They've created the double-bind question where there's no really good answer. The kind of question like, when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, Really hard to answer that. Well, I never, I, oh, I, oh. It's one of those sorts of bits. And think through this. If Jesus says, don't pay taxes to the emperor, now he's committed treason. Here come the troops. If Jesus says, pay taxes to the emperor, which is an abhorrent idea to the Jewish people, especially in the middle of Passover, where they're feeling Roman oppression religiously, not just politically, he loses face in the sight of the people. They've come to trap Jesus, and of course, he proves himself to be uh, untrappable. (laughs) In fact, he sort of springs a reverse trap on them. Think through this. He says, well, 
show me one of those coins. And it's helpful to know that you can't have one of those coins in the temple. You know there's that incident, you've all heard about this before if you've been in church, not even very long, where Jesus chases away the money changers. You've heard this before. They're outside of the temple, not inside. So they're at the gates to the three football fields because you can't bring any kind of idolatry into the temple. Why am I mentioning idols? Because if you're Jewish, a graven image of a person or an animal, whether on a coin or a scroll or a garment, is idolatry. Caesar's face is on the money. The money is categorically idolatrous and unclean. So when Jesus says, show me one, and they produce it, they've actually discredited him themselves before all of the people. They shouldn't have that idolatrous money at all, let alone in the temple. That's one in, in the category for Jesus. Whose face and whose inscription is it? At the time, this would be the emperor Tiberius, um, preceded though by the emperor of, of Augustus, and we know his real name is Octavian. Augustus means something like the August one or the God made manifest. And that's the inscription, Emperor God Made Manifest. These people are holding on to money that not only has the a graven image, but the declaration, this is a God. These are religious teachers trying to discredit Jesus. <laughs> They've got the money. The money says Caesar is God. Again, that's score two in the Jesus column. And Jesus, you know, in, one, in some ways, he answers their question, but he doesn't answer their question. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's without elaborating on what is Caesar's and what is God's. Of course, we know the answer to that, don't we? I suppose, I suppose everybody then knew too. I mean, categorically, religiously. I mean, everything's God's, right? So what is there left for Caesar, or is the money actually Caesar's, so that you give the money to the Caesar, but, but the other stuff is God's? I, I mean, it's really sort of hard to pin Jesus down on the exact position. Uh, but I do think it's worth thinking through a little bit that traditional bit that we get. Everything is God's. So we're supposed to render everything that is God's to God's. That's that's everything. Interestingly enough, every year we think about stewardship, and I've got to tell you, my brain thinks about stewardship is how am I going to be a good steward of my stuff? And I don't just mean my money. I mean my time and my commitment, and how am I going to be a good steward of my house and my cars and my parenting and my education? I think about that stuff sometimes. Am I being a good steward of that? Of course, what Jesus is saying that I fail to really take to heart, I think, is that my stuff isn't mine. <laughs> Um, I think he's asking us to question whether we're stewards of our stuff or we're stewards of God's stuff. And I don't want to pin this on you and say, listen, all the money you think you have isn't yours. I'm not going there. I would rather us go somewhere else. I'd rather us go with things like grace and love. I think the question is, how are we stewards of God's grace and love? When I think about grace and love in my own life, to be honest with you, and what I possess, I usually think of them as being limited resources, just like every other commodity that there is. 
whether that's corn or dollars or time, there's only so much to share. So I have to be really careful who I give my commodities to because I'll run out. And I have to be really careful who I give love and grace to because there's just not enough for everybody, you know? So, um, so I just need to be careful and focused. It's really bothering, though, to think that God's grace and love are unlimited and we're supposed to be stewards of that. <laughs> it's a very different sort of way of economically thinking. Uh, beyond that, the research that I've read from Kristen Neff and, and, and Brene Brown refers to this too, um, is that grace and love are not like other limited commodities. It turns out that the more we give of those things, the more we have to give of those things. Um, I will say that having a child who I am deeply in love with, of course I have two children that I'm deeply in love with, I don't have less love to give anybody else, I have more. In some ways for the first time, I've loved other people's children through my own. I think this is a common human experience and I wonder if this isn't what Jesus is asking us to consider what we do with God's grace and are we risky and you know just to keep us safe a little bit I think coming back to something I mentioned a few weeks ago I think it's really key to think about how we're stewards of God's grace especially in places like churches and and not to overbeat a dead chariot or a horse or something like that um, sometimes I think we approach things in here like we've just got limited quantities of God's goodness to give. And I sure grew up hearing that things like, well, communion and baptism, if you didn't have the right mindset when you did it, it was dangerous for you. Like some kind of, somehow encountering God in a close and spiritual way could be negative. So if you took communion and you hadn't done all the confession, well, it was going to be bad. It was going to be worse than if you hadn't had it. Does God's love and grace really work like that? I mean, I think this is really worth considering, or is that just how our love and grace work? Does God have a limited economy where God says, how oh, you weren't ready for this gift, so now I'm going to kick you for having tried to receive it? Or does God say, this gift was here for you all along anyway, glad you took it. Hey, if you misuse it, you'd be just like my daughter who misuses plenty of gifts I give her. And I continue to give them joyfully. Don't you? And I wonder if this isn't part of the bit to say, give to God what is God's. Give back to God the grace and love that God has given us. Give back to God the dignity and grace we've been stewards of. And so, you know, again, this week, somebody came and asked me if I would do a memorial service for their parent that was buried in Mexico. I don't know this person, and I'm positive they're Roman Catholic. And I suppose it was an opportunity for me to say, now, why do you want me to do that? You know, I'm not Catholic. Or let's do some teaching around church funerals so I can make sure you understand what I'm going to give you. I'm worried that would have been really poor stewardship of God's resources. It seems like better stewardship was saying, you know, I'd really like the church to be there when you want it. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> I don't know when we're doing it still. Um, this is one of those hard things about being stewards of, of grace and love as we try to do it. Um, I thought I was going to do it at 10 in the morning on a Saturday, um, but, but maybe now we're going to do it at 6 at night. 
Um, I don't know how many people are coming. That's kind of inconvenient. I'm pretty sure that's exactly why God wants us to do it. God wants us to go to moments of inconvenience so that the church and grace and love can show up in other people's lives, especially when they just really need a yes and some flexibility. We go back to Moses a little bit, you know. Um, he seems pretty frustrated here because, after all, he'd like some confirmation that he's not just doing this thing, that God is actually with the people. And Moses has been struggling to know who the new Moses will be so that there'll be some sustainability and, and, and you know, some leadership to come up behind him and see the next generation through. And beyond that, poor Moses just seemed like he'd like a friend. God, I just would really like to know I'm not alone. And they have this sort of exchange about what God's like, and Moses says, hey, you know, God, if you would just go with us wherever we go, then we'd be an anomaly on the world, because God would go with us. And did you notice God sort of declines that ultimately? I mean, God says, yeah, sure, except God moves in a different way. God says to Moses, hey, um, listen, I'm the Lord, which means I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And, and, and Moses, let's not forget that not only I will be who I will be, but I'll be gracious to who I will be gracious. gracious. That's, that's a continued theme. And I'll show mercy on whoever I choose to show mercy. And it's a good point to pause here. Who would God like to show grace and mercy to? Well, Episcopalians, right? <laughs> Primarily. I mean, we're like Israel. Uh, a, a priest, I'm confident, priests, especially with gold vestments. Um, I mean, really, this is a great thing. In some ways, it's like God saying, Moses, uh, you'd love for me to accompany uniquely in the world, but friend, I, I'm going to reserve who I can be gracious to, not you. You don't get to reserve my grace and my love I get to reserve that. And I do think it's worth us coming back and say, who has God reserved it for? And under what conditions? And then God says something really interesting uh, when asked by Moses, show me your glory. Remember, Moses is worried about a leader. He's worried about succession, and he really wants God to go with him wherever he will go. And God says, well you can't actually see my face. You die. So here's what we'll do instead. I'll just sort of cover up until I get in front of you, and you can see my back. Now, never mind the fact that at the time this was written, people thought God was about 30 feet tall. Don't get bogged down in that. Where did I know that from? The temple was 30 feet tall, and they thought that was God's house, so God had to fit. Never mind that the ark was God's footstool, which meant God stood on it, and they carried God with them whatever they went. Never mind that. Don't get bogged down in the fact that in the text's mind, Moses might actually be looking at God's back. Instead, consider how God shows up. Moses is worried about leadership. Moses wants God to go with him. And the image Moses gets is that God is already going first. The image God gets is that, continu that Moses gets is that continuity and leadership and proof of God's presence is that God is already making a future for the people. It's almost like God is saying, Moses, I won't go with you. How about you try following me instead? 
The glory of God, in some ways, then, might be better described as us seeing that God is preceding us into a future instead of asking God to validate what we are already doing. There's a great midrash about this. Uh, midrash. This is what the rabbis do creatively. You know, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters don't just read the Bible. They read the Bible, the commentary on the Bible by the rabbis, the commentary on the rabbis by other rabbis, and then they read things like midrash, imaginative, like here's what the Bible left out that I wish it had said. And they read those four columns on the same page at a time. If it sounds confusing, it is a little bit. There's this great midrash that says, everywhere we go, a messenger from God precedes us and says, make way for the image and likeness of God. Stand aside, listen. This person's worth looking at. This person is worth hearing. This person has the image and likeness of God. And so that messenger precedes David and says, make way for David, image and likeness, bearer of God. And that messenger says, everybody look at Janet, image and likeness of God, make way for her. That messenger says, here comes Gloria, glory to God, she's bearing the image and likeness of God. I wonder if we render what is God's when we listen to those messengers that precede one another wonder if we give back to God what is God's when we take that seriously enough to say, oh, maybe God has chosen to show mercy and grace on you. Maybe I'd better do that too. And you know, the one I most easily forget is not that other people are preceded by these messengers, of course, but that I am too. And this is part of stewardship we often forget in a way, I think that we can see God walking in front of us into a future is when God says, make way for Mike, image and likeness bearer of me. To think that my life is not my own, but that I am a steward of the life that God intends for me to enjoy is serious reconsideration for me. How can I enjoy the life God intends for me to enjoy? If I do that, I'm giving to God what is God's. How can I create more enjoyment in the life of God's image bearers, whether they be Gloria or Janet or David or the people I see on TV whose politics I don't agree with? That would be giving to God back what is God's? Maybe, maybe this is all pithy, and it's just Jesus getting out of a trap. But maybe this is Jesus inviting us to get out of our own trap, traps that we lay for ourselves, false dichotomies about who's and who's and what's is what's and what God intends for it all in the first place. I am confident, I'm confident that the texts this week invite us not to some kind of brow-beaten, okay, it's all yours, God, but the ability to stand up straight 
to breathe deeply, to look at ourselves and one another in a new way and say, thanks be to God, it is all yours, and I will share it with you, God. Amen.